Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. On today's episode, a conversation between my colleague Neil Govier over in Hong Kong and Lutfi Siddiqui in Singapore. Lutfi is a CFA charter holder, an adjunct professor at the National University of Singapore, and a visiting professor in practice at the London School of Economics. He speaks and writes frequently on a range of topics in finance. As you can imagine, they had a lot to talk about. For one, the convergence of stakeholder capitalism and investors' desire for more sustainable investing. They discuss whether companies and investment managers have truly embraced this change and whether they can be relied upon to affect long-term changes. Lutfi also shares three of the nine taboos he believes have fundamentally reshaped the long-term investment environment. A quick note before I turn it over to Neil, Lutfi has just written a blog for the London School of Economics in which he expands on the ideas in this podcast. You can find the link in the episode overview. And now on with the show. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Lutfi, it's uh, very kind of you to join me again today. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Neil. How are you? Good to see you again. Uh, I'm, ve- I'm very well, and uh, I hope you're enjoying your, your new freedoms in Singapore. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, the, the last time we had a conversation, we were earlier on in COVID-19, and I remember you, the conversation was about how things might change, and you introduced uh, stakeholder capitalism. So time has passed. A few months have now gone. So what do you think will be the, the greater impact and uh, change in our outlook regarding the economy, finance and investments, uh, and how this might impact upon your thoughts on stakeholder capitalism. So a big question, I'm sorry about that, but uh, ready for the answer. That's all right. Well, I'm still very much on that horse, uh, Neil. If anything, my view has strengthened. I believe we are on the cusp of a great convergence between stakeholder capitalism on the one hand, when it comes to investee companies and impact aware, responsible, sustainable investing when it comes to investors. And that convergence, I think, is extremely exciting because it should lead to a lot of good things. Um, We're still very much in the thick of this tragic pandemic and and, and the economic crisis that it's generated. So it's very hard to say things with absolute certainty. Um, there, there will be several rounds of feedback loop between how the pandemic plays out and policy response to that uh, a few times over. But with that caveat, I think the first point I'd like to make is that several taboos have been broken in recent months. Uh, nothing is sacrosanct. If you look at some of the policy responses, um, I wrote an article outlining nine of them, and let me just list two or three. Uh, First, for example, the political spectrum between left and right seemed to have compressed dramatically. Uh, You have uh, virtually all governments, whether they're left or right party dominated, announce fiscal measures, wage support, job support at very large scale. Um, Some of the measures even look like uh, universal basic income. Uh, Then you look at monetary policy, extremely loose monetary policy, quantitative easing in very large scale, zero interest rates, flat uh, yield curve, money printing, monetization of government debt uh, without any, any pretense uh, that people are being uh, mindful of inflation expectations. Uh, even the editorial board of the Financial Times seems to be okay with uh, debt monetization. And it's not just in 
developed world. It's also in emerging economies. Uh, one last one. Uh, I think we're seeing, uh, we've seen the end of this, uh, the, the fetishizing of efficiency. So hyper-optimized supply chains uh, cannot withstand structural change. Uh, and so there's perhaps more of a realization that a bit of redundancy and diversity uh, translates into sustainability and resilience in the system. So I don't want to go through all the taboos that have been broken, but the overall point here is that we should get used to challenging almost everything that we take as structural constants. And so my view, my outlook from here on is very much based on that foundation. Well, when I look at I, sorry, I just got to interrupt there. Um, so you mentioned three of your nine taboos. What do you really mean? Or what is your understanding? Or what should I understand by the term stakeholder capitalism? So stakeholder capitalism, um, I guess, very much popularized in the last 12 months or so. It's almost exactly a year since the Business Roundtable, which is uh, made up of the top CEOs of US companies, that issue, they issued a declaration that said uh, that we we are moving away from shareholder primacy. We think the purpose of a company, of a corporation, is to cater to all stakeholders, not just shareholders, uh, workers, community, suppliers, etc., etc. Uh, and I think the economy that we are bouncing forward into, I don't think we're bouncing back to the economy of January 2020, is one where there is a conversion of interests on both the demand and supply side to boost stakeholder capitalism. So I mentioned this uh, roundtable declaration last year. We also had in this period uh, the principles for responsible banking, which dovetails PRI that we're more used to, responsible investing. And that uh, requires adherence to not just SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, but also Paris Climate Agreements. Uh, we have the OECD launch a business alliance for inclusive growth various central banks demanding stress tests uh, when it comes to climate risk. So we, the rhetoric has certainly moved on and it's now more about how do we implement um, stakeholder capitalism. And then through the pandemic, we've seen uh, very, quite a few for-profit corporations step up to assist communities in their response to the crisis. And many of them have made commitments uh, to lead the recovery process. I was speaking to, there's a major bank CEO recently, um, they made uh, a, a commitment, a pretty hefty commitment on the hiring front for the next uh, 12 months. Uh, and I asked, uh, why did they do that? It, you know, it's not exactly going to boost their short-term return on equity. And uh, the CEO said, look, the first instinct was to cut costs and cut back in these times. But if you have an entire cohort of university graduates without a job, it doesn't really help anyone. That, that is a systemic issue. Um, one of them also said, in a year's time, we think we'll be sorting out companies between villains and heroes of this episode. I wanna make sure I'm in the right column when it comes to that. But the general reason here is that if you're a company making goods, you need demand, you need people buying your stuff, who is going to buy your product? If inequality continues to uh, get extreme, and income goes to people who simply end up saving that money, putting it back into the stock market, not really spending, uh, then the spending gap causes an issue for your product. So companies have an enlightened self-interest in fostering new sources of demand 
which almost by definition means inclusion becomes a strategic driver. They need new communities, new regions, new markets uh, to drive growth. So this is from the investing company's point of view. And there is an exact mirror argument from the investor's point of view, which just, is the community. Just before we mention the investors then, um, this almost sounds too good to be true. Was this trend, uh, had it started before we got into the pandemic? Or is it that the pandemic has caused greater focus on you know, what is good and you know, ESG investing, et cetera, and sustainability? Was it already, was it already happening? Uh, yes, so uh, certainly we, we had already observed uh, a search for new markets and uh, a, uh, an increase in appetite for exploring markets that had previously been seen as too risky. Uh, going into underserved communities and trying to do business perhaps in areas that used to be conflict, uh, a conflict zone uh, in the recent past would not have been within the risk appetite of certain companies, but now more and more are looking at them because they're realizing that if we can um, generate demand, that is more demand for the goods that we need to sell. But it certainly has been accelerated uh, through the COVID um, situation. I think from a prisoner's dilemma point of view, equilibrium now is for more companies to jump on the bandwagon as opposed to stand on the sideline and say that, look, that's not something we want to get involved in. Sorry, well, sorry, I was just going to apologize for interrupting, and that's exactly what I've just done again. That's uh, right. You, you talked about the great convergence, and you talked about it from the, uh, uh, you know, sort of the investment management side and the business side, and you were just about to talk uh, through it from the investor's side, and that's why I interrupted you. So uh, please carry on with your convergence. Sure. So then uh, we spoke about the investing companies. So when you look at the investors, uh, the parallel question to who's going to buy your product is where would you put your money? Um, I believe existing assets, entire asset classes are saturated. Uh, stocks are overvalued. The outlook for returns uh, is not very high. We've spoken about interest rates uh, being low and I believe will remain low and the yield curve will remain flat for a very, very long time. So this wall of money triggered by quantitative easing needs a new destination. And once again, inclusion is the place to go. Um, this whole nexus of ESG investing, green finance, social bonds, uh, COVID bonds, education bonds, this whole area that directs money into areas that have been neglected in the past, when you looked at them from the narrow short-term return on equity lens, I think uh, we will see more money flow into those previously excluded sectors. And there's tremendous leadership now being shown by these large influential investors, such as Japan's uh, the government pension fund, GPIF, several sovereign wealth funds here in Asia, they're already taking the lead. They're taking a, a systems view to the investment landscape. They're demanding ESG awareness. And I think they're catalyzing inclusion. Uh, for, for them, it's both a risk matter and a revenue matter. They want to be sure that there isn't externality risk, climate-related, for example, that comes to bite them later on um, on some of their long-dated investments. And on the return side, they're running out of sources of return. They really want finance to tap into new sources of return in the real economy. So that's the double coincidence between uh, the demand and supply between companies in the real world and investors in the financial world. And there are at least two other side effects or side catalysts that are also nudging us in that direction.
A very naive question, possibly, within ESG, um, is there more focus now on S? Is, is sort of the spotlight on more social welfare from uh, corporate activity? I think all three are um, in focus. Climate is probably, E is probably the one that has been most sexy so far. Uh, but social is now very much uh, the immediate requirement from the pandemic uh, issue. Uh, but G is also making itself very clear. So poor governance has, uh, we've seen quite a few examples of poor governance causing risks and uh, you know, dramatic drops in stock prices recently. So all three are very much in focus. I would say that E was uh, the front runner the Greta Thunberg effect, if you like, uh, until January, but S and certainly G. I believe G is the overarching one. If you can get that right, then many of the other things follow through that. Uh, and this is where regulators are also helping nudge things along uh, because disclosure or reporting, standardized reporting on whether you are doing what you said you would do, that is still a big issue. It's non-trivial. And you have, for example, European regulators now issue directives on the type of disclosures that they would like to see. You have the Bank of England, the MAS in Singapore, requiring banks to conduct stress tests and come back and report on, um, on how they're doing. So the regulators are certainly nudging. And then you also see um, the end users, the, the end providers of capital, your beneficial owners, particularly the younger ones, also demanding uh, a new type of investment management. And we see this in the CFA trust survey that came out very recently. Um, uh, you know, basically they want to see value consistent with their values. Uh, or in other words, they want to know how is it that you're generating returns with my money, not just what the returns are. Uh, for too long, those in investment management have taken uh, what I call the sausage approach to investment management. Just enjoy the product, don't ask how it's made. Similar to a sausage, basically. You don't ask how a sausage is made. But now these investors want to know. I'd like to know exactly what the impact of my money is and uh, you know, have a dialogue with me on ESG factors. Uh, and I think from the investment manager's point of view, uh, they're realizing that the more transparent they are, the more they allow the beneficial owners to influence how the money is deployed, the more sympathetic people will be when they may not be able to deliver on the performance that's expected of them. So it's great for the ecosystem, uh, but again, helps with the great conversions. Okay, well, I, I certainly don't want to ask too many questions about how my sausages are made. Um, but um, picking up on trust, you know, so you start off by saying the investee companies, uh, they are changing the way they're looking at uh, maybe the way they do their business. Are we ready to trust that this is a real change? Or are we still sort of slightly cynical and going, well, we'll wait and see to make sure that you've really changed your spots? It's a very good question. And I think uh, we need to remain cynical. We need to keep the spotlight in place. And we need to be mindful of uh, the free riders uh, or, or the ones who are tokenist as opposed to authentic and really making a material contribution. Uh, but uh, I think I mean, one source of hope I have is that in many of these companies, it's the employees, the rank and file employees who are proving to be the, uh, the agent of change. So even if the C-suite or the, or the CEO, uh, even if you are skeptical about whether she or he has fully bought into it or not, I think there is a thrust uh, from within the company 
And to the extent that the C-suite cares about employee engagement, I think that is a positive uh, dynamic. Uh, but it, it is something that uh, we cannot assume uh, that will continue without uh, a lot of spotlight on it. Well, we, we've seen recently, I think, within some of the, uh, uh, the social network companies, you know, sort of where employee action uh, does resonate and can, in, in fact, change. And I was reading today of a couple of um, advertisers who are also sort of taking action because they're looking for positive change. So it does seem as if there is now a swell of genuine feeling that uh, change has to happen. That's right. That's right. I agree with that. Okay, so um, we've got the great convergence. Um, we've got stakeholder capitalism, and it's all going to be wrapped up with trust. Um, so we're going to come out of this, I think, a lot more positive, uh, according to you, Latvi. Is that right? I think so. I think it's a, it's a horrible, tragic global far-reaching pandemic but if there is to be a positive side effect i believe it is in this uh, nexus of stakeholder capitalism and responsible investing uh, i think it's going to change society fundamentally and it's going to change institutions fundamentally and it has to change capitalism and investment management also at a pretty fundamental level so when i catch up with you in a year's time the world will be a very different place then a different place and, and in many ways a more positive place, I hope. Well, that's good to hear. And we haven't even had time to go through all your nine taboos yet, so I'll have to read your article. So, uh, uh, Lutfi, okay. as always, it's been a great pleasure to speak to you and thank you for giving us your time today. Thank you. Thank you again uh, for having me and all the best. Okay, and uh, enjoy the freedoms that uh, I think Singapore is offering you at the moment. Take care. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.